We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This thing on? See, now I'm getting mad. Because it's getting ready to be on. I want my whiskey to bite me a little bit. This is the kind of psychopath that I hang out with. I got beat up outside of a Denny's. The Rockpile Report. With Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. He likes to get in the ex's nose. Something I can't do with this podcast because I drink too much. Chris Kruger. My rollerblading blonde mohawk producer. The pettiest, hardest drinking Bills podcast. I'm an adult. I know what I'm about. Here we are, another edition of the Rock Pile Report, coming to you from the bar. And, you know, I, I swear to God, for any of you, those, for like those of you out there with children, like, there's gotta be... <laughs> we love our kids. You know, it's hilarious. I, I was listening to something, some comedians were joking around on, uh, on a podcast, and they were talking about, uh, they were just comparing how, like, people do things. It was tasteless jokes about the January 6th thing and I was laughing because I'm like I know what I kind of know what that's like like a, like an ins- a pointless insurrection happening it's a my two-year-old just tried to overthrow the entire household right before bed and it's hilarious to think about right like he obviously like I hold all of the authority he has none and he doesn't know he's too dumb to know that he's not in charge and he's gonna fight for his right to party at approximately 845 at night it's hilarious what that does <laughs> You as an adult, for the rest of you out there as parents, like, God bless you. Like, I'm just getting into this now. It really is crazy to me that, like, we have this much, like, I don't know. Like, he's only two. What else? What else exists out there? What what do I have to look forward to, right? Like, this is it? This is going to be the whole thing forever. I don't know, man. It's It's definitely... It's definitely something, but we're here on Twitter spaces. I'm doing a podcast from the bar and I just, I've got some bills related thoughts that I'm kind of spinning through in my head here. Um, you know, you get up, I guess that's where this all starts because I got up with my kid the other night. He couldn't sleep and I start looking at the news, sports news, sports related topics. And I realized that the Buffalo Bills have Ed Oliver at defensive tackle. And I see the news on Pro Football Talk that Jeffrey Simmons, Jeffrey Simmons defensive tackle for the Tennessee Titans, the Tennessee Titans who just hemorrhaged everybody 
on their team, right? They just cut everybody and everything on route to, I mean, what are essentially cost-cutting measures, but they cut everybody, and they're they're kind of, they, they have the look of a team that's tanking, right? Like, they have the look of a team that's definitely tanking. All right, we're back here live on Twitter Spaces. We're trying this for a second time, folks. T- technical difficulties. Listen, imagine paying $6 billion for something. D- wait, not six. $46 million, whatever, whatever Elon Musk paid for Twitter just to absolutely destroy it is hilarious to me. Like, it's, it is one of the funnier concepts, right, of all time. Like, I'm rich and I'm going to flirt with buying something. Then I'm going to get legally forced to buy it. And then, and then, at the end of all things, I'm just going to turn it into absolute shit anyway. It really is a hilarious thing. But this is me. This is Drew Gear. I'm coming to you from the bar. I like the fact that I don't have to do these shows at the same in the same same vein as I do the other ones. You know, it's interesting. I get a little more freedom with them. I can kind of start them whenever I feel like it. It really is nice. And you know, I I joke around about Greg Thompson's show, which the Greg Thompson show. It's it really is like he he puts a lot of time and effort into the idea that he can. You know, just on his own, carry a show. You know, he can get some listener feedback. I guess it's one of the things about doing it on StreamYard. You can actually do it live. You can get feedback. I like doing it here like this because realistically, there's, I don't know, it's me talking to me, my my favorite person in the entire world. Don't tell my wife I said that. My favorite person in the entire world. So how would I not have a good time with this? It's funny, when I started the first iteration of what this podcast in space is inevitably going to be, I had jokes. I mean, guys, it was I'm almost happy that it's not going to make this recording. The Chris can vouch for this. There was jokes about uh, the, the January 6th insurrection or incident, whatever you want to call it, uh, comparing that to the uh, like. I don't I don't know what to call that because it's way more than a temper tantrum. What my two year old just did trying to overthrow order in my household. It was wild. I've never seen anything like it before. Like, that's the type of thing I can do down here with this kind of a format because there's nobody except for me and a handful of people dumb enough to click the button when I'm talking. It's so, but, but that's kind of the impetus of this entire conversation. I just got some ideas floating around in my head. I'm interested to see if anybody else who's awake at night wants to come in and pick their brain. If not, it's just me talking to me. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting forum and you can get feedback from other people who want to chime in without having to be in the same place with them. So it's a, you can be a lot lazier than you can in a podcast studio. This is a lot of fun. I like it. I got a beer, I got some whiskey, and I've got some thoughts. They start, you know, the other night I was awake, my kid, he's one, he's not sleeping all the way through the night yet, and I'm up and I'm just rocking him to sleep, and I'm scrolling through, I'm scrolling through Pro Football Talk, and I see that they, you know, around like 11 o'clock at night, they post this thing about the Jeffrey Simmons extension, the Jeffrey Simmons that the defensive tackle from Tennessee, who just signed a monster extension. A monster extension with the Tennessee Titans that now makes him, at the age of 25, the second highest paid defensive tackle active in the NFL right now. And it just got the wheels turning in my head as, you know, you're in a quiet house and you're just thinking it's just you and your thoughts. 
I'm thinking about Ed Oliver. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, a four-year, $94 million contract for Jeff Simmons, uh, $23.5 million at average annual value, $24 million signing bonus. I think it's like practical guaranteed money is just shy of $60 million. It's like 59.3. You take a look at that and you think to yourself, what does that mean for Ed Oliver? You just watch a guy set the bar for what? A disruptive you know, player who's capable of playing three tech, but realistically, you know, Simmons is in a different category than Oliver. He can do a little more of the one tech stuff than Ed Oliver can. And he's obviously made a lot more flash plays over the course of his career. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at it now. You know what? He's 15, 16 sacks over the last two seasons, you know, which is far and away the six and a half that Ed Oliver has. But also, he just shows up in big moments, in pressure situations. You know, think back to the Monday Night Football game that the Bills lose. It's Jeff Simmons making the play to make sure that we don't pick up that extra yard we need to convert. You know, that extra what half yard that we need to convert and get first and goal where we can punch in a touchdown and win the game. It's Jeff Simmons, and that's what he's done for Tennessee. And I feel like an Oliver hasn't. He's not even in the same ballpark as far as a player who, you know, making an impact. And so in that way, it is kind of funny to me that he can't really uh, like he can't really or at least hasn't. I guess can't's not the right thing to say, right? Because he, it's not like he's incapable. I'm sure that someday for some team, Ed Oliver will be an impact defensive tackle. He just hasn't shown it often enough for a Bills team that's going to have to make a decision on him. And you, know, you think about this. If Buffalo wasn't willing to shell out for Edmonds or for even a veteran stopgap linebacker, you know, they let, you know, when Levante David was out there, he was my pick as, hey, this is a guy you could pay a bunch of money to. I liked him more than I liked some of the other options out there. And at the same time, it didn't matter because the Buffalo Bills and Brandon Bean were not willing to shell out for any stopgap linebacker. Now, knowing how important that is to the structure of our defense, do you think they're going to splurge on a rotational three tech with Oliver's resume? I don't think so. And I think that based on his social media usage as of late, I think the cat's out of the bag. I think he knows that. And I think that, I don't know, I, I think two things. As we're sitting here talking about draft concepts and just the roster, and I think that that alone, paired with the fact that there is no defensive tackle on the roster in 2024, I guarantee you if they offered an extension to Daquan Jones, he would probably take it. He's in the, at the end of his career, but still has a lot of value. He was their most consistent defensive lineman last year. So we could have at least one guy, and I'm sure that there's depth players who would return if we asked. The Bills haven't yet asked, and I think that part of that has to do with the fact that they genuinely believe that there are some cheaper options they could maybe get on the roster this year. And so in that way, I think that the defensive line becomes a bigger part of Buffalo's draft weekend plans. I think more so than the average fan wants to believe is possible. Yes, they have developed the depth at the position. I mean, we talk all the time about guys like Eli Anku, Brandon Bryant, who came into big games over the last two seasons and provided you valuable snaps. And you go back to guys like, like I remember in 2017 when the Bills broke the drought, you know, Eddie Yarbrough, Eddie Yarbrough 
Think about how little anybody has ever said that name outside of the 2017 season. He was make he was one of your rotational starters. And then the second they didn't need him anymore, he was gone and has you've never heard about him again. Like this team develops depth type guys like that pretty well, but realistically you don't marry those guys. Right. Like (laughs) you just don't marry yourself to players like that. And so in that way, you need cheap depth, but you got to have guys with a little more upside. I just and I also look like so now I just keep thinking, first of all, what do you do with that, Oliver? You're talking about a draft where you could. In fact, it's a weird offseason because there's so many veteran players still out there. Like if I were to Google it right now. 2023 NFL free agent tracker. If you were to go out there and look like I saw the other day, Bud Dupree. Now, Bud Dupree has been no slouch. He had a couple injury riddled years in Tennessee, and it's kind of what led to his release after he got that fat contract. But there are some strange position groups with a lot of veteran talent just kind of hanging out out there. And I find that highly interesting because what that means is that there's guys to be had post draft, right? So, There's also players available via trade because there's so many guys out there in the market still. I just feel like there's, I don't know, there's still moves to be made at a lot of these positions. Yeah, you look at this, Leonard Floyd's still out there. Frank Clark. Frank Clark of Kansas City Chiefs fame. Frank Clark has not yet signed an extension with anyone or has landed a contract. Yannick Ngakwe, still out there. Jadavian Clowney, still out there. There is a lot of veteran talent that has kind of priced itself out of the market. And there's a lot of teams that are thinking defensive line They have to be in the draft. Otherwise, these guys would have contracts. And so in that way, I guarantee you there hasn't yet materialized a trade market for Ed Oliver the same way there hasn't developed a free agent market for so many of these like veteran defensive ends and pass rushers and D tackles that are still out there on the open market. I think a lot of that has to do with teams who are looking at the quality of this upcoming draft class and saying to themselves, man, maybe we don't need a Jadavian Clowney if I can get a guy who can give me a little bit of juice, but doesn't cost me the $8 million to $10 million to $15 million that one of these guys might be asking for, depending on their age and depending on where they are in their careers. I mean, all of these guys are over 30, but they all... Like Frank Clark's only 29. He doesn't have a deal yet. That should tell you that there are more teams than just Buffalo looking to the draft in this defensive line class. So you shouldn't be surprised when you hear stuff like that, because that seems to be where the value is in this class. So that kind of shrinks the Ed Oliver trade market a little bit, right? Like by default, the Ed Oliver trade market gets smaller when there's that many veterans out there still on the market. And then when there's just not many buyers, Right. You're a seller of a defensive tackle who has a you know, a little bit of NFL success, but nothing, nothing you would say, oh, my God, I can hang my hat on this guy as my game changer at defensive tackle. If you were to move him to another team or in another defensive scheme. So with that in mind, you need to find a buyer before you can be a seller. And with this many veteran free agents still out there, household names still out there on the market. I just I feel like right now until the draft actually happens, maybe even draft day, and it may not be day one, 
it may be day two, day three, where that defensive line depth in the draft is really going to get tested, that you're going to find out who the buyers potentially could be for an Ed Oliver. And so for all the fans who are postulating about, well, we could trade Ed Oliver for this, or we should package Ed Oliver in this pick to get this player. You know, you're talking about the DeAndre Hopkins trade, for instance, or I remember when people were talking about trading for uh, Cam Sutton from the Denver Broncos to address their wide receiver depth issues. You need to have a buyer. <laughs> and right now, there haven't been any different. I shouldn't say any. There haven't been a ton of defensive line buyers, even of household name players so far this offseason. So with Ed Oliver, I think the Bills have kind of made their mind up. Yeah, he's probably going to follow the same path Tremaine Edmonds did if they can't find a buyer. At the same time, you have to think that if he could, if they can maximize the, some value from him, they're probably going to try just to avoid a repeat of the Tremaine Edmonds scenario where I think just because of his role, you couldn't trade him, but you end up watching him walk away for nothing other than hopefully a compensatory pick. So then you say to yourself, okay, so if everybody else seems like they're kind of eyeing this defensive line draft class here, that's going to come out over the course of the, we're going to see play out in about a week and a half. Then what else? Like, what else feels less probable? You know, trading at Oliver, if that's an idea that I'm firmly willing to put my stamp on the fact that I think that you, I'm throwing cold water on it. What else can I throw cold water on? And it's the offensive line situation. You know, a lot of fans spent time this offseason talking about the need for improvement. And don't get me wrong, it's still there. <laughs> the offensive line for the Buffalo Bills still needs to improve. In this week's positional preview pods, Russ Brown is going to join us on our show for a look at the offensive line class. And so maybe that conversation will shift my expectations a little bit in terms of the value that I get from this class. But I think that if you look at what the Bills have done this offseason, anybody who's on the bandwagon of, you know, day one or day two offensive line, if you're on that team, you're already making your T-shirts at home like team offensive line. Temper it just a hair. You know, maybe only order one shirt and don't put it on right away. Maybe keep it in a closet somewhere easily accessible so you can throw it on at the last minute and make everybody believe you were wearing it the whole time. I don't know. This is what I see. There's first of all, Brandon Bean in his you know, season ending press conference. You, you could tell based on his comments, he still thinks Spencer Brown has value. And Greg Thompson had a really interesting tweet the other day where he was kind of bantering back and forth with a fan talking about how. If the Bills don't take a tackle, like if Darnell Wright falls to the Bills at 27 and they don't take him, they're idiots. First of all, it's a terrible position to take because the draft is wide open. It's wild. But also, to Greg's point, even as a like as a rookie at 27, just because you took him in the first round, he's like, I could still figure at least 150 to 200, maybe 300 snaps for Spencer Brown, even knowing that you just spent a first-round pick on that tackle. So with that in mind, does that seem like a good usage of assets? I would argue no. I would argue that you doing that is basically you saying, hey, I took this pick that should, in theory, be landing me the most impact of any player that I can have an opportunity to get in this draft, and I'm throwing it all the way to 2024. I'm saying I'm going to bank this for a future year. And I don't think it's something that, as a fan, most people would celebrate. And I just think as an organization, that would be a mistake with where you are and the roster you've constructed. And then you look at the, the guys that they did bring in. You know, Dave Questenberry, 
He's a guy, love him or hate him, has starts at both offensive tackle positions. Tommy Doyle's still recovering from, I believe it was an Achilles tear. Maybe his was an ACL. I don't know. No, it was uh, Ike Bucker who had the Achilles tear. Offensive guard. You've, so you've got Mitch Morse at center. At guard, you've got Bates and Greg Manns. But then you look at that and you say to yourself, okay, Bates has played center. Greg Manns has played center. That's three tiers. I've got my starting center. I've got a backup center that I like. And I've got a depth guy that break glass in case of emergency, practice squad fodder. Holy shit, I hope I never need this guy. But Greg Manns has been in this system now for two years, and I think that he's a guy I can trust in a drastic pinch. You've already developed three tiers of potential center talent in the event you need it. And then Bates... You've got some guard flexibility. Then you've got Ike Bucker, a little bit of guard flexibility behind them. He started at both spots. And then there's the Dave Edwards pickup, right? Like the McGovern thing, obviously, that was the one that like, hey, we're going to try to recreate on a similar salary, but with a younger, better athlete with less of an injury history. They tried to redo the Roger Saffold thing. They just did it with a younger player with a little more, I don't know, maybe a little more road left to his game. I like that's cool the mcgovern signing you had to do but the edwards pick is the one that i was like i don't know if they're gonna go guard because chrome first of all Cromer loves the guy he's six foot six massive human being had a bunch of nasty concussions his career long he positively positively grades as a run blocker he has put together seasons of highly effective pass blocking like in 2021 when the Rams won the Super Bowl and he allowed 35 pressures in the regular season, but eight in the season finale when they benched a bunch of other starters around him against San Francisco. So 27 if you take out that last game and then six in four playoff games, including a Super Bowl. Like that's the kind of play you get from a highly talented starting guard in the NFL. And then his concussion issues and the team was, you know, L.A. didn't have any money, so they weren't going to bring him back anyway. So for me, I just I looked at this and I say, okay, the Dave Edwards signing is the one that tells me they're making these moves. I just don't know if like where does a young guard, even a day three, you know, if you don't take him in the first round, if you're not talking about a guy like a John Michael Schmitz, uh, uh, Cyrus Torrance. Who is coming in here and competing with those guys for snaps? Like This is a guy who started in the NFL who is your third string option at guard. You could When you take a look back at it like that, it seems like this guard room and this interior offensive line group that everybody likes to prognosticate draft capital to for the Bills. And they still might, right? Because you still need long-term cap flexibility at those positions and you still need stuff like... It seems like they've already kind of built themselves a very deep interior line rotation with upside through free agency that they're paying no money for. And so in that way, it almost seems foolish that they would then go throw a first round or second round pick into that. Because I could see a world where if David Edwards post concussion can get his game together, I think it would be very hard for like a day two, day three rookie to push a guy like that and push him a govern. And also push some of the other players ahead of him on the depth chart to try to find meaningful snaps in the offseason and then the preseason training camp. And then there go, there go, how is he supposed to get on the field on Sundays? And again, the thing that will ever forever stick in my head is in 2019, Brandon Bean went out of his way to tell journalists 
that when they were talking ahead of 20 free agent 2019's free agent spending spree where the bills really did remake what their line was for the very first time in front of josh allen they said he he made a point that he trusts guys who have done it before so with that in mind I just I know that it makes sense, right, to go unless, you know, if you can get yourself a center of the future. It's the reason everyone was so mad that they took Boogie Basham instead of Creed Humphrey, which I'll still never forgive them for. It's still the offensive line is something that Brandon Bean has shown time and time again. He does not prioritize highly in the draft. He prefers to I trust coaches. I trust coaches to find me NFL veterans who I have watched play on Sundays and that I trust and then it's up to my coaches. You know, I'll bring them 20 candidates and then they whittle it down to the 10. We're going to chase them free agency. And if we can land five of them, that right there is the depth I need. And then if I can add a player in the middle rounds or in the late rounds and they grow into something great. And if not, fine, I'll go back to patching holes in free agency. Like that has been the way they've handled this. And I don't know. You look at what go to our right now and look at the Buffalo Bills. Just look at the offensive line. I'll tell you, like, that's it. I just don't think like the way that they've historically gone about offensive line building leaves me with confidence that they probably will not lean towards offensive line, in the t- at least not in the top 100 picks this year. I- I'm almost so confident I'm willing to put a Seagrams on it. Is there anybody here in the chat who, who wants to challenge me on that? Anybody here who's willing to take me on no offensive linemen and we'll call it the top two rounds? Anybody interested? If you have anything to say, you guys want to chime in, you have any thoughts on that, feel free. That's the beauty of this forum. <laughs> I, I kind of like this format. I, it's it's interesting. Not only that, but then I'm completely unfiltered and everything I say, there's people listening to it. So, like, yeah, for those of you who tuned in right now, I'm, I was referencing at the top of the show a temper tantrum my two-year-old was throwing right before I started recording, and I made a January 6th like corollary and realize I could get like, there's a lot of people who won't take it. And that's why this format's hilarious. Like that's the stuff that Chris either bleeps over or edits out that we just, you come back and we're laughing about it's nonsense. It's all in poor taste usually, or at least comedically. They're all jokes. Not everyone's going to find them funny, but when you're doing it live, (laughs) you can't hide from that. Uh, So then my brain wandered to some other things as I'm sitting up rocking my kid to bed at night. And it was about, you know, all of these things, the defensive line stuff, the lack of a trade market for Ed Oliver, what we've done with the offensive line to a degree that it's like, okay, maybe they're not leaning that way, even though fans and prognosticators like to point the finger at that. And I end up looking at the list of pre-draft visitors for the Bills. Uh, the guys over at Cover One put out a really unique graphic. They were talking about uh, known, you know, known quantity and like kind of like basically trying to graph and map out the number of contacts the Bills have had with various players over the years, whether it be the combine visits, whether it be a pro day scouting, something like that, and then extrapolating that into guys that they actually ended up drafting. And it turns out that Brandon Bean, since he got here in 2018 was his first draft, they really did kind of find like there there is a pretty close correlation to the amount of time they spend scouting guys and who they end up adding to the roster. You know, there are some guys who, you know, they might not have had them in for an official top 30 visit, but then you find out, well, they visit him with them at the combine and then they also were there at his pro day. 
And then you talk to Dean Kindig from, uh, you know, the Buffalo fan base, the Bills Mafia group, and he tracks all of this stuff and you find out that, okay, so they flew to a couple games and they were there, had scouts in the stands at some of the players' better games. Like, They'd been scouting this guy. It's just not out there on Front Street for for everyone to see. It was going on in the background. So I, there's a website, WalterFootball.com, and I think that they do a really good job as far as comp, for not being a site dedicated to one you know one team. It, it, they do a good job covering and tracking these visits. And so I start looking at that list as I'm sitting there rocking a one year old to bed, and. The thing that I start noticing is just some trends in their visits and kind of where things have gone and how some of the things you see when you track that down run counter to the things that we've come to talk ourselves into believing when it comes to what the Bills could do in the draft. Right. So, like, here we are talking about interior offensive linemen and how great it would be if the Bills could walk away from this draft with a starting center in the, you know, waiting in the wings. He could play guard. He could do a lot of things. When you look at the centers in the draft, they've only met with two, both via virtual visits. And that's John Michael Schmitz from Minnesota and PSU's Juice Scruggs. And that's it. And now neither one of those guys, some of you know, some people are saying that John Michael Schmitz should be a first round pick. And I'd agree if he's the only interior offensive lineman in this class that someone guarantees that guy will be you know, kind of Creed Humphrey style. He will be a great interior offensive lineman. Then by all means, especially with the caveat of the fifth year option being available, if you take him in the first round, I have a hard time believing that he won't go there. And so then you start to wonder, is that something that might be too rich for Buffalo's blood, given their needs elsewhere, given the way that they love defensive linemen, they love defensive players, and honestly, the way money gets spent at those positions, that seems to be where some of the value is. It's interesting to me that they haven't really done a lot of due diligence on other interior offensive linemen. Uh, Osiris Torrance was the only other interior offensive lineman to like get any kind of shine from this team. And they brought him in for a top 30 visit, but he's one of the only guards so far. And so I think that that activity speaks to the roster building that I was just talking about. And this is the concept. Like, on its own, these 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 visits, the times that they've scouted a player, in a vacuum, each one of them is kind of meaningless unto itself. It's when you get the rest of the tea leaves involved and you start watching it all swirl and you say, okay, well, here's this and here's that. And here's this other thing that I kind of know about my GM. And here's another thing that I kind of know. Like, maybe he could surprise us and do something out of character, but... I seem to know these things about the decision makers over for my over here for my football team. And I'm watching all these things swirl around and I'm saying to myself, I don't know, like if he doesn't go off the reservation, he sticks to the tendencies that he's come to be known by. I have a hard time believing that like like a picture starts to kind of crystallize in front of you. Now, obviously, no one can say for certain what's going to happen. But things start to be start to lean between the roster construction and then look at the lack of scouting activity they've done for the interior offensive linemen. I think that if there are if there's a run on them early because there's so few in this draft, I don't know. Or maybe they believe that the draft is deep and they go the traits we're looking for. We can get those on day three. So we're not going to push it. I could see that, too. But it's interesting that there's been so little activity. Meanwhile, you look at some numbers that are stacking up some of the other positions, and it's not hard to notice. First of all, the wide receiver room. Wide receivers and tight ends and pass catchers in general have received a 
ton of, a ton, a ton of activity from the Bills scouts, both when it comes to you know, just looking at Dean Kendig's war chart. And I guarantee you, if you reach out to him, TC Astro on Twitter, he'll show it to you. He's very proud of his work over there. They have done an extensive work this year scouting these wide receivers. And so when you think about it like that, and then you just look at the visits between pro days and between combine meetings and then between the guys that they're bringing in for private workouts, all three, you know, de facto first round wide receivers, Addison, Flowers, Jackson Smith and Jigba, like all of those guys have been in our building. And for you know, Quentin, uh, what's his face? Oh, from TCU. He's they, they've also met with him. And then for some guys like Addison, they've scouted them extensively. Like you look at the list, they were at they met with him at the combine. They were also there at his pro day. They also brought him in for a private workout, and they also scouted two of his games over the course of the season. Now, obviously, there could be other players on the USC team, and I've heard that people go, "Well." Drew, I don't know if that means anything, you know, just because they were there. There's all these there's 90 guys or 50 guys on the because college rosters are absurd. Sure, you're right. It could be that they were at the pro day to see somebody else. But then they met with them at the it's like met with them at the combine and then they bring them in for a private. So, So if they care enough to do all these other things, does it make sense that they would probably be there looking at that specific player when they scout a game or when they're at a pro day? Jordan Addison has talked about as one of the wide receivers who's going to be one of the higher ones taken in the draft. And as we talked about during a, uh, I think it was our show with Brett Coleman talking about defensive line, there's been this trend over the last couple seasons where there's wide receivers being drafted ad nauseum within the top 15 every year to the point where Jameson Williams of Alabama went in the top 12 last year with a torn ACL. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let that sink in. A wide receiver who the team knew wasn't going to contribute anything in his rookie year got drafted in the top 15. That tells you what GMs are starting to believe about the value of hitting on those wide receiver picks. And you look at the guys who were taken there, they, none of them were slouches. Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, Jameson Williams. Like, Jameson Williams is in, he was thought of as being in that caliber of player. And one of those guys, one offensive rookie of the year. GMs are clearly weighting the value of these wide receivers now, star potential wide receivers. 
And so it's just interesting to me that the Bills are at 27 are looking at these guys. And then you throw in a whopping seven other wide receivers between Jalen Hyatt, Josh Downs, Tank Dell, who play various roles and, you know, have various kind of inconsistent values. You start to get the feeling that Buffalo is really trying to zero in on something, something with this wide receiver class. And you look at and not all of them are meant to be outside. You know, everyone says the Bills need another boundary wide receiver because Gabe Davis ain't it. We need a replacement plan. Oh, God, that bourbon's good. Go ahead, smart guy. Tell me who, which one, who, who is a Gabe Davis replacement, you know, a year from now. I think a lot of people look at the draft and just go, well, I see the tag wide receiver, the draft a wide receiver and he'll just take that guy's job. You do realize Josh Downs is a slot receiver, right? Like he's a slot receiver and guys like Tank Dell and get, when you go down this list, a lot of the wide receivers, when you get outside of those big three or four are slot guys, or at least and maybe they can play some outside in the pros, maybe, but they've shown you in college that that's what they are. So I guess I question why would you as a fan look at that and go, yeah, but we can make him something else. And then also, if he doesn't fit the immediate need or actually solve the problem that you think you have, why would you think a GM would spend a lot of capital at that? Right. But nonetheless, you look at the scouting activity. I'm looking at this like I'm, I'm looking at this list here. I mean, they've gone as far as bringing in, you know, they, they met with Josh Downs at the combine. The Zay Flowers got brought in. They scouted his game. They also uh, game. They also went to the combine and met with him. They also brought him in for a private workout, even though by all accounts, he's a patriot if he falls that far. It's not a well-kept secret. You just look at some of these guys. Justin Marshall, a wide receiver out of Buffalo. Like, UB wide receivers are getting scouted here, folks. Like That's what we're talking about. They are really digging into this class. And so the question is, why? You got to start wondering, what are they trying to glean from this? And I was having a conversation with Ryan Lasel who is listening right now. Uh, he and I were going back and forth via text before I started recording, and I told him, I go, when I look at this, I also have to think about some tweets that I've seen from people like Gum. I've also seen uh, some tweets from people like G- Jim Nagy, who he... He Jim Nagy, he's a he's a tweeter. I think he's big with the Senior Bowl. He does a lot of stuff there, and he's in the scouting community. And he tweeted out that between wide receiver four and wide receiver eight, there was not that glaring of a difference in this wide receiver class. Now, I don't know if that's intended to be a shot at the talent at the top. I don't know if that's intended to give you the idea that these high end guys maybe aren't the premium player that you'd think you'd be getting if you were to spend the same capital that you used to get a Garrett Wilson or that if you used to get a, um, you know, they uh, just stuff like that. Like, I, I, I just I, you have to think about that a little bit. So then I start to think to myself and, and Ryan immediately bristled and he was like, do you think they're going to take like what are you suggesting they take a second round talent for a first round pick or a first round value? And I said, no, 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 no. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to talk themselves out of this concept. I think when you see a team that's doing this much work on wide receivers, and they brought in the best of the best, 
And then they sit down and they go, well, let's look at everyone else. Let's look at the guys who slotted immediately behind them. And let's go back to our draft board and say, okay, where did we value this guy? What kind of a grade did we put on this player? Well, let's take a look at everything that's in there and let's get up close and personal with these top prospects to see if they smell that much different. If they're that much more like special than these other guys who, by and large on our board, didn't grade that differently. It almost feels to me, and I, I you know, we're going to talk to Mark Schofield about tight ends and wide receivers that, to, on our show on Wednesday that we record. But it just feels to me, if I had to, you know, if I had to guess at it, that rather than talk themselves into doing something like trying to trade up for one of these top guys who are going to be hot commodities because of the way these first round wide receivers have come in and impacted the, their drafting teams. I think they're trying to talk themselves into saying, look, if we wait till day two, the gap really isn't that big, like personality wise, locker room, you know, character wise, skill wise, what we've seen on tape, the way we've graded them. And I think that that's why you see this team turning over every single stone it can to look at these wide receivers. Whether it's comparative skills versus price, mental makeup versus tape, there's something going on there. I don't know. They're leaving no stone unturned, which is nice if you're one of the people like me who has been banging that drum about needing more offensive firepower on this team while Josh Allen's still in his prime and still not his, his contract still isn't at peak value. I also like the fact, right? Like it's a phrase I use all the time. You, know, you walk into a barbershop often enough, you're eventually going to get a haircut. This is the first time that I've seen this team put real effort into scouting the wide receiver position the way they have pre-draft. This is the most pre-draft attention that Brandon Bean has put into a wide receiver class pre-draft. Like, that's not debatable. That's it's it's all tracked there in combine visits. And who did who did you guys meet with? Who did you guys bring in for your top 30 visits? You go back. They've done an extensive amount of work on this class, which tells you they're working at something. Does that guarantee you a first round pick? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's the boldest uh, assumption to make. But there's something cooking there. Just look at the tight end position, which I almost think is more like I like the idea of that more than anything. Every premier tight end option, the Bills have had some sort of pre-draft connection to Musgrave, Schoonmaker, Mayer, Washington, everyone except for, oddly enough, Dalton Kincaid. They've met with every one of these players. They've brought in. Most of these guys, you know, they did a virtual meeting with Payne Durham, who I had to Google his name just to find out who the hell he was. But they're meeting with some of the depth guys, you know, they're having virtual conversations with them. Then you go down and they say, okay, they met with Michael Mayer at the combine. So they have a meeting there. And then you go down a little bit farther. Luke Schoonmaker. They met with him at the combine. They also scouted him because he's, you know, they had scouts at Michigan games this year. And then you go down and you find out that Darnell Wright, or not Darnell, Darnell Washington. Now, he's a guy they brought in for a private workout. They've scouted games because obviously Georgia. There was eyes on Georgia this year because they have multiple NFL players being put up. So it's hard to know if, hey, Darnell Washington was the guy they went to go scout, or maybe he's a guy that popped when they were there scouting and got their attention. They also met with him at the Combine. And then they brought him in for a private workout. (laughs) 
It's those types of things that can start to make a difference when you try to stir the tea leaves around and see, okay, what is this team getting at? Are they fleshing out their own evaluations? Well, if so, how many guys are on their draft board at tight end at all? Tight end's not a position that this team, you know, the year that they drafted Dawson Knox and uh, Tommy Sweeney, that was the first time that Brandon Bean spent capital at the tight end position. And I remember joking about it on a podcast not that long ago. You have to go back to like the mid 2000s. I think Sean Nelson was the last Bills tight end to be taken like in the third round or higher. Like That's it. It's Dawson Knox, Sean Nelson. And then you got to keep going back like into the late 90s, early 2000s. Like that's not a people wonder why that position like outside of Pete Metzler's has always been poor. Well, what are you putting into it? It's like any other program. If you put crap in, crap is what you'll get out. It's the same concept. You can't keep feeding fifth round, sixth round, seventh round UDFA type players into your tight end room and just assuming you'll luck into a Travis Kelsey or that you'll luck into what Dawson Knox is now. At some point, you're going to have to gamble with a top 100 pick and just say, look, I thought maybe even not top 100, but definitely in the first you know, a day one, day two type move and say, look, I think that this guy's physical skill set because that's it. Tight end, you know, Bruce Nolan, he and I have had some conversations about this off air privately, just about how these positions physically make up. Tight end is always interesting because you've only got a handful of tight ends coming out of college who have real statistical, you know, like this might be the deepest tight end class in terms of guys who actually made box scores everything else beyond that is usually when you're picking up a tight end it's just traits it's just size and traits and then it's offenses saying hey maybe i don't need a a, you know if i need a pure run blocker i can probably find a tight end to glorified offensive lineman i can find those in day three those guys you know they don't necessarily grow on trees because most colleges don't bother rostering guys like that anymore but there also isn't a land rush for their skill set. So when you do have two or three of those guys in a draft class, you don't have to take them on day two because no one cares. It's like you're the guy who wants the thing that doesn't. It's like the analogy I have for those tight ends. My favorite donut. You know, people buy donuts for the people in the office. You know, you'll have a coworker who brings them in for someone's birthday or, you know, some big wig comes in for the afternoon and decides, like, I'm going to see, you know, I'm going to appease the little people. I know what will mollify them. I'll bring them all a bunch of donuts. And there's a land rush, uh, just like seagulls flocking to a sandwich on the beach. Everybody rushes into the break room to get their donut. And I never have to move. I never have to move. I take my time. I mosey because when I get to the kitchen, my favorite donut will be sitting there. It's the unglazed, unsweetened fry cake donut. Nothing on it. No sprinkle. You you put a sprinkle on my donut. I'll fucking lose it. Right. That plain fry cake donut will be there an hour after those boxes are opened. If I feel like waiting that long. And that's what blocking tight ends are in the draft. <laughs> so if you're out there looking for a Lee Smith, you can get those guys on day three. You don't have to scout them ad nauseum. You identify him and you basically say, look, if I go in the fourth or fifth round and draft this guy, he'll be there. No one's racing me to get that guy and bring him into their program. 
it's the guys who can do a little bit of both. You know, the, it's the receiving guys. It's the guys who teams think can be your Jimmy Graham, can be your Dallas Goddard, who can be because no, no one, you know, everyone goes looking for every. I feel like everybody who goes looking for a Gronk or who's who goes searching for a Travis Kelsey, it ends up like the uh, Last Crusade, like that uh, <laughs> the Indiana Jones movie. Like you inevitably pick pick the wrong goblet. <laughs> and you turn into a skeleton and you die. You'd be like the Ravens and end up taking th- multiple first round tight ends. And it turns out the best one of the bunch was the one you took in the second round. Like that kind of makes you look like a horse's ass as a GM. That's the thing is everybody who chases that. Oh, my God, this guy has everything. He can block in. He's a dynamic. But for some reason, those guys fail. It's the second round, the third round guys. But it's traits. And that's all you're scouting. And so when you see the Bills casting this wide of a net, because don't get me wrong, like there are a lot of tight ends in this draft, but every one of them has a very different skill set. Darnell Washington is probably the closest thing to what you would say about like a Dawson Knox who came out in his class. There's not a lot of box score stuff going on there because the tight end that he played with was incredible in the passing game. Um, I'm trying to think of what his name. I feel like his name was Bo something, but he was incredible. I remember, you know, SEC football. I watch a lot of it. He was torching defenses. And you had this hulking, you know, run blocking tight end on the other side. Numbers. It's always cool to see a tight end wearing zero when he's that big and he's out there in the open field just knocking people down. But then as the season wore on, they kind of rolled Darnell Washington out like a uh, like a secret weapon and on into the college football playoffs. And he helped he gave him a lot of success in the playoff run that culminated in a championship. But so with that, then you look at like a guy like Mayer who doesn't give you a ton in the run blocking department. He's more of your like, hey. I can be a red zone weapon. I can be active in the hashes. I can get upfield in the seam and do a lot of things. That has danger to it, right? Like because that's everything that they said about Mike Kaseki, and you see how his career is kind of unfolded, and that's why you get you know, Luke Musgrave, a guy who can do a little bit of run blocking, give you a lot as a pass catcher if you utilize him properly. Like so. If they're going above and beyond to vet the skill sets of this many of the top end tight ends, am I crazy to say that based on the fact that this franchise has never prioritized that position, this GM literally took one year, took two flyers of picks, a late third and a seventh, and said, you know, on this rock is where I'll build my church, (laughs) my tight end room in the future. I mean, and then hasn't really tried to go out and find a high dollar free agent either. Like the biggest move they made in free agency was to try to get O.J. Howard. And then that literally exploded in their faces and they had to jettison him off the roster and pay him for the like they paid him three and a half million dollars not to play football last year for them. I had to take a sip of beer after that because that's that's wild. We paid a guy three hundred three and a half million dollars guaranteed cut him. And then he went and sucked for two other teams before they caught him. That guy made like four and a half, almost five million dollars for sitting on a beach somewhere last year. I think that's pretty impressive on his part. But then you think about what that said about the Buffalo Bills, brand new first time offensive coordinator. And you say, okay, the fact that they made that level of investment in O.J. Howard tells you that there was something cooking there. 
this idea of the 12 personnel stuff that we saw in the preseason and that we talked about a lot as fans saying, like, oh, my God, this will give us the ability with another dynamic tight end. They could run all kinds of passing formations out of this and still be dynamic. They don't have to be run first out of 12 personnel. And you could see that there was at least a desire to do so. And when the O.J. Howard signing cratered, that all got scrapped, I felt like. And it disappeared from our offensive game plan for the entire 2022 season. But that doesn't mean that they don't want to. <laughs> and so when you, again, you talk about stirring the tea leaves, you take this idea that, okay, here's a team that last year showed me that this is something they want. And they thought that their pro scouting department had nailed down the perfect guy to do it. To the degree that they made a significant investment and more at least significant enough for this regime in the tight end that they thought could get the job done also for a reasonable price. Okay. All right. I'll buy that. I will, you know, and I think that some of the crazy tight end contracts that got signed last year didn't do them any favors, but ultimately they, they said, we, you need this as a first time offensive coordinator. Sure. You have some ideas. We'll get that for you. It needs to be cheap, but if we can make it happen, we will. It failed, but that doesn't mean the desire to do so went away. So you have that. Then you look at this scouting activity and you say to yourself, okay, they seem to be very focused on something here with the with the tight ends ahead of the NFL draft. And then you add to that the wrinkle that this group of like this class of tight ends. Again, Mark Schofield will be on the show Wednesday to really walk us through what his thoughts are on this group pre-draft. But. It might be one of the deeper tight end groups to come out in the last handful of years, at least since Brandon Bean's been a GM. So it wouldn't shock me, again, you stir those tea leaves around, to see a tight end taken somewhere in the top 100. And that's another thing that I'm starting to become more like, I can see it. I can see it crystallizing in the work that they've done, team needs, team philosophy, and just what's out there. What do you guys think? Like, that's that's the thing I like about this. I get to ask that question and there's a reasonable opportunity that someone might answer or someone might have something to say. Um, If not, tweet us at Rockpile Report. Let me know what you think. I mean, am I just am I just drunk down here in my basement yelling because my like, is this just me lashing out because my children are driving me crazy? Or are these ideas like like am I just sleep addled and that's where this is all coming from? Or. Am I maybe on to just a few things here? And maybe did some of you learn something from hearing some of this, or at least develop some of your own thoughts, hearing the way that this team has scouted over the course of this offseason and the groups that they've put the most effort on, wide receiver and tight end, when the consensus is that the defensive groups are the heaviest you know, in terms of the amount of talent, the depth of talent, that the wide receiver depth, you know, you ask a lot of people, they say, well, day, day two is where the real value for wide receivers are. Well, the Bills are sure as hell churning through them. Their scouting department is definitely earning their paychecks when it comes to wide receivers this year. Same with tight ends. There is depth. There's high-end talent, but there's also depth. And again, they're working overtime on these positions. And at the same time, offensive line? No. There's just not a whole lot of eyeballs being put there by our scouts. Or at least that that we can assemble here based on all collectible evidence. Now, what does that say? Does that mean, hey, maybe they're trying to justify pass catcher in the second round? Okay, then if we've nixed pass catcher in the first round 
And we haven't done a ton of work on offensive linemen. No tackles, or at least not any of the prominent ones. Uh, no real connection to any of the interior offensive linemen. Okay, then maybe you can downgrade that. And so now you're left with defensive end, which again, this class is brimming with talent for. But every team knows that. And then you're looking at, I don't know, like defensive tackle. The Bills have met with just like four defensive ends this offseason. They haven't really put a ton of activity there. Derek Hall was a virtual visit. Like one of them wasn't even in person. None of the guys that they've met with, when you look at the list, are first round draft picks. Meanwhile, defensive tackle, they have five visits and counting with guys at defensive tackle spread out between day one, day two and day three. Guys who project as one text, guys who project as three texts. Yeah. I still remember 2021 when we all fell in love with the depth of the defensive tackle class. And then the moment that we didn't have a fourth round pick is where the run on him occurred. I remember everyone was all pumped up. Greg Thompson lovingly called him trophy Shelvin and was just like, please give me a fat dude who we can plug into the middle of this. Just some tree stump, you know, a movable object that we can try to groom to be a one tech. That didn't happen. We missed our shot at it. I feel like if I'm going to bring this show full circle, defensive tackles are being heavily scouted by this team. And then you've got the Oliver situation and the age of Daquan Jones and the fact that even though they had opportunities to extend Daquan Jones and that it would have made cap sense for them to extend Daquan Jones and they could have really helped themselves out by buying a few more million dollars this offseason that could have gotten them into some maybe some of the bidding wars that were going on for some of the more explosive offensive talent. They didn't. They stood pat and said, we're going to slow play this, and we're going to go into this draft with zero defensive tackles under contract for 2024. (laughs) I just feel like that again. You look at where their draft attention is being paid pre-draft. You look at their needs. You look at what their team might look like if they trade at Oliver. If if post-draft, or let's say day two or day three rolls around. And the teams at the top that were saying, look, we really need a three tech, but we don't want to pay one of these guys who's a veterans on the market. We want to try rolling the dice and see if we get a cheap option in the draft that has long term upside. And they come up snake eyes. All of a sudden, those guys like we talked about Oliver not having a buyer, like the buyer's market needs to exist before the bills can be sellers. That's where you're going to find that. And so in that way, the Bills also have to protect their position in that by maybe themselves looking at three techs and saying, look, if one of them falls to us in the top 60 and we think he is the replacement for Ed Oliver, it makes it easier for us to divest ourselves. So maybe if we don't get the immediate return that we think we're going to get or we can afford to package him and send him somewhere along with another future pick. I just think that defensive tackle like interior defensive line is a place that, again, You look at all of the evidence as it's kind of crystallizing before us. Wide receiver, tight end, defensive tackle are three positions that it just keeps circling back to when it comes to the Buffalo Bills. I just I I I can't get away from it. Now, again, you want to if you guys were listening to this just so that you don't think I'm crazy. WalterFootball.com. Look at the track, the visits tracking. Then reach out to Dean Kindig, TC Astro, 
I think underscore bills on Twitter. He'll give you his entire scouting workbook and show you the games that our scouts were at and who, you know, what players were involved in those games and how they performed and who might have popped in front of our scouts. And and you start to connect dots that, yes, when you're just in a basement with a glass of whiskey in one hand and a beer in the other yelling into a microphone, you probably come across like Charlie Day trying to prove Pepe Silvia exists. Like you're trying, like that's what it sounds like to a lot of you. But I think that I'm on to something here. I don't think it's just the bourbon talking. Now, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch and talk more about this offensive line class and more about this wide receiver and tight end class this week in our NFL positional preview podcast. And then, It also gives you this concept. I'm going to leave you with this. I'll tease the last show we're going to be doing Monday, the 24th, with my buddy Doug, who is this. I hate mock drafts. Everybody knows that it's like if I had to count down the things I hate, there's like bigotry, um, cancer, 9-11. Mock drafts isn't that far down the list. Obviously, that's I some of that's some of that's hyperbole, but not much. I really hate them. I think that they're it's a waste of time for me to sit down and do that. Like I would rather go write Yelp reviews for plumbing services than go do a mock draft. I hate them. With that said, there is I begrudgingly admit that there is some value to doing them. My friend Doug, he's a high school football coach. He's pretty smart when it comes to the game of football. He's also obsessed with these things. So he's been doing them for a month, and he continues to do them right up into the run-up of the draft. He's going to come into the show, and he's going to talk with us about all of the players who seem, you know, all over the hundreds of these things that he's done over the course of the last week and a half. Who falls to the Bills most commonly at 27? Who are the next five picks after that most commonly? And then crunch the numbers on who the top 15 players available in the top half of the second round are. And the reason we're going to have that conversation is because you have to ask if if you as a team are trying to talk yourself into day two wide receiver, like it seems the bills might be. If you're a team that's saying, look, I've got needs, right? I might need a defensive tackle and maybe the value isn't quite right in the top 30, but maybe I could get that guy in the top. 45 and feel pretty good about it you start to question what the value of the bills picking in the first round might be at all depending on how the board falls and then you also combine that with the fact that the fifth year option for these players is worth an incredible amount like it's one of those dynamics that i think a lot of fans lose sight of the fifth year option for gms is invaluable because it gets you an extra year where you don't have to tag the player Right. Like, I don't know how the I don't know how the Players Association let the league get away with this. You basically get a free year of not free. Right. You're paying that player a premium. They're getting I can't remember what the factor is, but a, a significant jump in pay. Like Ed Oliver just played on the you know, fifth year option. I think he was making like twelve million dollars for the season fully guaranteed. So it's great. It's like a baby version of the franchise tag, though. And even worse than the franchise tag is that the player gets no say in it, really. Right. Like the team just gets to say, hey, we think you're worth a fifth year. We'll give you a slight increase in pay. But we're de- if you're that good, we're definitely probably underpaying you based on what the market would yield. Like, look at the Ravens and Lamar Jackson, the, the pissing contest they just got into. They had a fifth year option, luckily. And it was the thing that got them through this season and into the playoffs for another year with Lamar Jackson at, at the helm. If they didn't have that fifth year option, he would have held their feet to the fire a year earlier. 
And so they, you know, in that way, if you're trying to draft a star player in the first round, or if you as a GM think, I've got this guy on my board, he's there on the clock, he's a, I think, like, I'm in love with this guy, because that's the only reason you trade up, right? There's a guy that you're in love with, not a position, not a, hey, I just want a nicer pick, so I'm willing to sacrifice future for it. You got to know the guy. But if that guy's there, why wouldn't you as a GM give yourself a guaranteed fifth year at a slight raise that you don't have to negotiate with the player? Like if you've already done the homework and you've convinced yourself he's a, he's a potential star, you would also probably give up something of value just for a little little bit of that extra security on the back end. The same way the Bills are doing it with that Oliver right now. So that 27th round pick, 27th overall pick, if the value isn't right for Buffalo based on how the board falls and the positions that they've put so much time and effort into scouting, there may be a team at the top or middle of the second round that says, look, that fifth year option is worth giving up some future draft capital or some extra capital in this draft for me to go out there and get. And in which case you could see the bills move back. And I'm interested to see who might be available at the top half of the second round there. Should that be something the Bills decide to do? There's, for the first time in a long time, there are a lot of options. And yet I feel like none of them in the first round really make sense for this football team. <laughs> and that's why I hate these exercises. Because I just like I walk away from every conversation with one of our, you know, our panel of draft pundits who help us preview these these groups. I walk away from those conversations going, you know, defensive line. I talk to Brett Coleman and he leave, I leave there. And maybe again, that's me with a head full of whiskey. But I go, holy shit, that we need a defensive lineman. And then I talked about linebackers with his co-pilot there at bootleg football, EJ Snyder, last week. And I sh- we shut that show down and I look at Chris and I go, holy shit, man, if we could get that Jack Campbell all of a sudden at 27, that seems like a good idea. Like that seems like a quality pick for the Bills. And that's just recency bias. And a lot of fans are guilty of it, which not for nothing. Notice I didn't say anything about linebacker. There really hasn't been much. I mean, they met with Nolan Smith, who is more of an edge than an inside linebacker. Uh, Trenton Simpson at the combine. You know, you look at the guys that they've talked to and they've met with and they've like, yeah, it's some of the bigger names, but they're not doing the depth of research that they've done on some of these other positions. So maybe those are the positions where they're saying, look, we know who's there at the top. So maybe linebacker becomes the pick simply because they say, look, we don't feel like we need to scout this anymore and we don't want to tip our hand. I I don't know. And this is where, again, it turns into a Pepe Silvia conversation. But I feel like I get away from every one of these conversations and I can convince myself of almost anything because, you know, you look at more evidence, you lay it out in front of yourself I feel like this is the first draft in a long time. I have no clue what the Bills could do. Literally all options are on the table for Brandon Bean. And so in that way, zeroing in on some of these tendencies is a lot, not only a lot of fun, but it's, I think, highly educational. Because in that way, when draft night comes around and the Bills do one of these things, I can say, okay, or, or they do something, you know, whatever decision they make, it's going to piss somebody off. And I can say, well, let's apply a little logic to it. Here's how I saw it. And this is why I'm not surprised by it. I know it's probably rare for people to think that I'm capable of that kind of you know, <laughs> that kind of I don't, I don't know research that kind of thought open ended you know football conversation other than just screaming shirtless in a basement with a Montucky in each hand, but it's nice to get to put these thoughts out there 
Yeah, because this is the shit that rattles around in my head while I'm rocking my children to sleep at night or when I'm fighting with a two year old who's decided that he now he refuses to go to the bathroom because he wasn't allowed to take his own pants off. Yeah. Riot in my house because he wants to take his own pants off. And he wants he wants to go potty, but he wants to do it on his terms and he'll burn the house down around him if he has to to get it like father, like son. And I'm, I'm ruining, right? My wife constantly reminds me of this, and I am ruining it today. But so these are the things that bounce around in my head and actually keep me sane during those moments. And I'm happy I can come here and share them with you guys. I'm interested to hear what you guys think. You know, tweet us at Report. Shoot us a DM. Shoot us an email, rockpowerreport716 at gmail.com. We're going to have, in our show, Monday the 24th, we're going to make our own prop bets. You know, we're going to have some Seagrams involved. We're going to have some prize, some swag giveaways. If you guys want to participate, feel free to get in touch with us. We've got some great content coming up here over the next week and a half ahead of the draft. But for tonight, I think I've said my piece, and I think I'm good to get out of here. I'm going to finish my whiskey in peace. Guys, I'm Drew Gear, and this has been your Rock Pile Report from my basement bar. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.